beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you fly into Amman International Airport in Jordan and you rent a car and you drive down towards the Dead Sea and then alongside the Dead Sea to the very southeast end, you come to the valley or the Gore As Safi. And in that valley, we find one of the biggest ancient burial complexes in the world. There are tens of thousands of graves in this remote, deserted region. Thousands of them from over the last 2,000 years, but thousands of these graves from as long as 4,000 years ago, around the time of Abraham. And scientists studying this area perceive that this used to be an area which was very verdant. Used to be lots of rain, lots of water. It was a verdant valley supporting lots of population. And that's where all the graves come from. There was a, there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of people living there 4,000 years ago. But there are no longer cities. There's only the graves that were outside of those ancient cities. And that area now that used to be so verdant, like the garden of the Lord, is now a dry and dusty and deserted area, one of the poorest areas in the country of Jordan. And in this area, in this valley, on ancient maps going back to the first centuries, there was a little town called, in Greek, Zoara, which is very probably the biblical Zoar. It is 400 meters below sea level. And as you stand in this area of Zoar and you look up at the mountains of Moab to the east, they tower about 4,000 feet above you. To get an idea of what that would look like, it's like standing in Canmore on the main street and looking up at the Three Sisters. That's the height difference. What happened? What happened in this valley that used to be so verdant, so populated, and now it's deserted and dry, and there's no one there? What happened? Well, the scripture reveals to us the history of the great judgment poured out on this area in Genesis chapter 19. It's a reminder, brothers and sisters, that the word of God is not just a collection of nice stories to make us feel good when we're having trouble dealing with life. The Word of God is a collection of historical records about who God is and what He's done in history. And so in Genesis chapter 19, we have the history of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the chapter begins with the two angels coming to Sodom. Now in chapter 18, they were called men. Now the Holy Spirit reveals to us what we knew already because we had read ahead that they were angels, two of them. The third of the men that came to Abraham, of course, was conversing, uh, had been conversing with Abraham. It was the pre-incarnate Son of God, our Lord Jesus himself, who was speaking with Abraham as he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. The two angels come to Sodom in the evening. How is that possible? It's a long way away from where they were visiting with Abraham. It's at least 30 kilometers over mountainous terrain 
they had had a long and leisurely lunch, and it would have taken probably 17 hours to hike that. So they, would, they, they did not walk the whole way. That's what angels get to do. They get to materialize and dematerialize and then show up again wherever God wants them to be. That's what these angels did. They showed up in Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate. And when he sees them, he bows with his face to the earth. And, and he sees the same thing that Abraham did. These aren't just two herdsmen that are coming back in from the, from the fields. They have a royal aspect to them. These are angels. These are servants of the Most High God. And they have the very uh, glimmer of heaven about them. He sees that they are important people, glorious and noble people. Uh, and so he bows down with his face to the earth. He shows them great respect. They're not just any two travelers. And he presses them strongly, look at verse 3, presses them strongly to stay with him for the night. The, the word is very, very strong. He, he forces them. He, he twists their arm. He really forcibly insists because Lot knows the city in which he lives. He knows what could happen to these men. He doesn't want them out in the open. He wants them protected in his house. And so then he brings them into his house, verse 3, and makes them a feast and bakes unleavened bread, the, the, the quick bread that Sarah uh, baked in, in the last chapter. And just as Abraham entertained angels unawares, so the man who the Bible calls righteous Lot also entertained angels unawares. Hospitality is the hallmark of the righteous. Having an open door, and welcoming people to your table, people that you don't know, people that are different than you, people that are in need, that is a mark of the children of God. And that's what Lot does. Now, verse 4, if you're following through in, the, in, the, in your Bible, before they go to sleep, the men of the city. Now, look at how the, the Holy Spirit puts this. Pay attention here to verse 4. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. You see how the Holy Spirit piles up the words here to say this is not just a bunch of people that are bad in the city. This is who they are. This is not uh, just an isolated group. This is the general attitude. This is the, in the city's DNA. This is, this is how they act, all of them. There is no righteous person in this city. And we see that as we go through the chapter, that in the end, it's only Lot and his family, his immediate family, that are saved from destruction. Well, that's one wicked city. And they, they say to Lot, where are these men that came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That's kind of a vile joke. They're, as, as the wicked often do, they take language and they pervert it. The verb to know in Hebrew speaks of intimate communion, a loving and intimate relationship. The Bible in the Old Testament uses the verb to know, to describe a husband and wife coming together intimately so that if the Lord wills, a child would be born. This is a very holy and, and beautiful verb, and these guys are playing with that. Let's bring these guys out so that we may know them. There is perversion in their language. And Lot knows exactly what they mean. 
Look, at, look ahead to verse 7. He says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. He knows exactly what they're talking about. They want to do what is wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And so in verse 6, Lot goes out to the men. He, sh he shuts the door after him. Now, this is the whole city, the rich and the poor, the, the important people, the, 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 the servant class. Everybody's there. This is one courageous act that Lot does. He goes outside, shuts the door behind him. He's protecting his guests, and he's, he's showing great courage here. It's a sacred duty to protect one's guests, and that's what Lot is fulfilling. And he says, my brothers, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. My brothers. Why is he calling these vile, wicked people brothers? Well, in one way, this is just an Eastern way of speaking. He's trying to appeal to, to common ground that he has with them to try to appeal to whatever me remain of their better nature. But just the fact that he calls these wicked people brothers reminds us of the problem here. What does Lot have to do with these people? Already in Genesis chapter 13, when Lot separated from Abraham, the Holy Spirit reminded us, Genesis 13, 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, and that's where Lot decided to build his house right there in the city. You look at Genesis 18, 20 from last week. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, said the Lord, and their sin is very grave. This was one wicked city. Why was Lot communing with these people? Why was he living amongst them? And if we turn to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, the prophet Ezekiel reminds us that the sin of Sodom was pride, an excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. This was a city which was well watered. There was abundant and fruitful farmland around it and also pasturing for flocks. It was on a trade route going north-south so that they could uh, impose taxes and customs duties on caravans coming through, and they could make money off trading. It was a rich, wealthy, arrogant, selfish city that crushed the poor and crushed the needy. And that outcry from the poor and needy had risen up before God. Now, now Lot could, could be in this city without being crushed because Lot was a small army on his own, wasn't he? Like Abraham, he had a whole group of servants and herdsmen and other people. So he's not all by himself. And there's a certain balance of power here that he's a little bit too big to take down for the people of Sodom. And so he can live there. He can benefit from the wealth without being crushed by the injustice. And Lot's fine with that. Most people are crushed. There is injustice, there's lust, there's perversion, there's pride, there's the arrogance of sin, and most of the poor and the vulnerable are crushed, but Lot is able to survive and to enjoy a comfortable life. And so he's happy with that. And then we come to verse 8. Lot finds a solution to the problem. He says, take my daughters and abuse them instead. And we say, what? What is going through this man's mind? How can any father say something so stupid? You know, brothers and sisters, when we sin, when we make 
bad choices, when we choose worldliness and, and our lusts and to feed our lusts, and when things go wrong, which they do, when we choose sin, then we often double down and make worse decisions, more stupid decisions. We pour gas on the fire. And we see that in our lives, don't we? And the, the more bad decisions we make, the more it just snowballs and we make the situation worse and worse as we try to resolve, as we try to solve the problem that our sin has created. We often do this because sin begins in the mind. Romans chapter 1 tells us that, that sin darkens the mind. And when, our, when sin darkens our mind and it, the darkness grows, and we sin more, and we choose another sinful way, and then we choose a, a sinful solution to the sins that we've committed already. And the darkness grows deeper and deeper, and our thinking isn't straight, and we suffer the consequences. Our brother John Calvin, commenting on this text, he said, Lot should rather have endured a thousand deaths than to have resorted to such a measure. And so that was a wicked thing for Lot to suggest. And Scripture doesn't approve of it. God doesn't approve of it. The ungodly didn't approve of it either. Verse 9, they said, stand back. Get out of the way, Lot. You're an immigrant here, and now you want to sit here judging us. And they pressed hard against the man. That's the same verb that we have back in verse 3. You know, when Lot was really forcibly trying to convince the angels to stay with him, here's the same word. They pressed hard. There was a lot of force. They're forcing themselves towards Lot and to break the door down to get into the house. And God intervenes. The angels pull Lot in and strike the men with blindness. Now look at verse 11. There they are, small and great. The great... Men of the city, the, the important people with all their honor and, and all of their highfalutin ways, and just the regular people. Everybody in the city is wandering around, groping. They wore themselves out. That's what sin does, doesn't it? Sin inspires and incites in us a lust to get what we want. God sometimes in his mercy says, no. And we don't give up. We, want, we, we keep trying and we keep trying and we keep trying. We keep groping for the thing we want, even when God has clearly closed the door to it. That's what the sinful heart does. They wore themselves out. And so the angels speak a lot you got to get out of here. And if you've got anybody that you love in the city, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone else, you got to get out of this place. We're going to destroy. They say it twice. We're going to destroy. Because why? Because the outcry against the people of this place has become great before the Lord, verse 13. When wickedness happens in this world, God sees it. When people are hurt, when people are abused, when people are mistreated, when there is injustice, God sees it. And men may think they get away with it. 
And men may think that everybody's forgotten about it. But every injustice will be set right. Every sin will be called to account. Every sinner must give an account before the one who judges all people. So God has heard the outcry and he has sentenced the city to destruction. Now, I mentioned Ezekiel 1649, and I want to invite you to turn there if you have your Bible handy. Ezekiel 16. The Bible gives us some important information about Sodom here. In Ezekiel 16, the Lord is, is tearing a strip off his own people. He's saying, you're living in sin, and he's comparing his own people with Sodom and with Samaria. So in 16 verse 49, the Lord describes to his people what the, what the sin of Sodom was. This is on page 703 in your ESV Bible. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, that would be the Gomorrah and the other cities, the five cities. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. We, we already quoted that. But now look at verse 50. They were haughty, they were arrogant, and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. They did an abomination before me. That's the word used in the law in Leviticus 18.22 to describe sexual sins. They are abominations. Same word in Hebrew. Specifically in Leviticus 18.22, he who lies with a man as with a woman, that is an abomination before the Lord. And so this is a clear indication from Ezekiel 16, from the scriptures, that this was the depth of sin to which Sodom descended. And that this was part of the reason that God sent fire and brimstone from heaven. Now you will, you will read commentaries, you will read stuff online from so-called Christians who are apologists for sexual perversion, who want to fit in with the world. The world around us celebrates and has pride in sexual perversion. And so you'll, you'll read Christians saying, well, look at Ezekiel 16, 49, the, the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality, it was arrogance and being unjust to the poor and the needy. And that's true. Those things were certainly there. But just read the next verse, Ezekiel 16, 50, specifically the abomination of homosexual sin and perversion was included in God's judgment upon this city. We're reminded of Romans chapter 1, as I've referred to it already, that, that our sin-darkened minds lead us to choose more and more wickedness until finally, if you get to the end of Romans chapter 1, God gives the sinner over to their perverted lusts and passions. And what is natural is twisted to become unnatural. People exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And so homosexual perversion is, in fact, at the very lowest depth of falling into sin. It is a sign of the wrath of God when he gives people over to these twisted passions. That's kind of hard to hear. Maybe we work with somebody who is homosexual, and they're very nice people, and we get along with them well, and we should. We should love those whom we work with, our neighbors. And 
we may wonder, how do we deal with this if maybe in our own communion here, maybe someone or some of us deal with attraction to the same sex? How are we supposed to think of this as we're hearing this judgment and, and these strong words coming from the pulpit? And I want to take some time at this point to, to speak about that. The scripture is clear that God created sexual intimacy to be reserved for man and woman in the covenant of marriage. That's the place for it to be. It's a beautiful and holy thing there. And any sexual intimacy with anyone outside of a husband and wife within a marriage is perversion of the created order. It hurts. It, it, it does not please God and it hurts us. Now, all of us, because we're sinners, are assailed by a myriad of sexual temptations at some level or on different levels. We have strong feelings. We have even desires for things which are not in accord with God's will. And so we have to make a choice. Do we embrace those desires or do we embrace God? If there are desires in us of any type that don't fit with how God tells us the world works, that don't fit with God's holy commandments, then we need to go to him. And we need to ask him not just to stop us from acting on our desires. We need to ask that too. Whatever type of desires we have that are not in accordance with his will. But we also need to ask him to take away any desire to sin against him. And that's what we can do, isn't it? We can say, Lord, help me not to sin against you. And where passions arise in me which are not pleasing to you, Lord, help me not to act on them. And please take those passions away. Take those desires away. That's all we can do. And then we need to be at peace. We need to find our identity not in what kind of sexual desires we have. We need to find our identity in our Lord Jesus Christ. That in him we are loved. That in him we are perfect. That in him we are pure and acceptable in the sight of God. And that his blood also cleanses us, not just from committed sins, but also cleanses us from the guilt of sinful desires. So if this is something that perhaps you are struggling with or someone you know is struggling with, there's no need to, to, to hate yourself, to, to be in anguish, to beat yourself up about it. It's something that you can give over to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I need you to help me. Help me to walk in holiness, to live in holiness. And if those desires you do not take away, then help me, O Lord, to put them aside and to embrace you, to make that choice daily. And the, the Lord will hear that prayer. And so we come to, to verse 13 again. We're about to destroy this place. The outcry against this people has become great before the Lord. Now, we often have mentioned as we've been going through Genesis, the whole thing of, of west and east, and how moving east, uh, going to the east, has the idea of going away from, from God. There's also the idea of up and down. As you read through the Old Testament, God meets Moses on the mountain. Uh, Mount Zion is the place where the temple is put. People go up to worship the Lord. So, so going up to the mountain is where God comes from on high to meet with his people. And conversely, going down is to go away from God. And... The extreme version of that is to go down under the earth, to go into Sheol, the realm of the underworld, death, 
And so we see a little bit of a glimmer of light here when we see in verse 14, Lot say to his sons-in-law, up. Remember, they're, they're about 1,000 or, or 1,300 feet below sea level. And Lot says to his sons-in-law, up, go up. There's a little glimmer of hope because going up is good. Getting away from this place which is about to become Sheol itself, death. And he speaks to his sons-in-law. You see that in verse 14. You remember from the Sermon on Circumcision that the word sons-in-law in Hebrew and also in Arabic is connected to the idea of circumcision. And so these are the circumcised ones. These are the ones that, that have a covenant to marry his daughters. There's a, there's, a, there's a connection there. And so he calls them from death to life, but they don't listen. You see that at the end of verse 14. They see, he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And the word jesting there is the word which is connected to the root of the name Isaac, the word laughing. He seemed, in the Hebrew, it would sound like this, he seemed to his sons-in-law to be Isaacing, But it's an intensive form of the verb, which doesn't just mean laugh, but it means to, to play, to, to play around, to jest. And also, it can also mean to play sexually as well. So there's a lot of layers in this word. And basically, the sons-in-law don't believe the gospel. They don't believe that God is a righteous judge and that he will destroy sin. They laugh about it. They make a joke about it. What a stark contrast. Here in the highlands, in the mountains, in Hebron, and the oaks of Mamre, there's laughter in Abraham's camp. There's the, the laughter of promise and the laughter of blessing, the laughter of life and the blood of the covenant which washes away sin. And down here in the valley, there's the laughter of vulgarity. There's the mocking laughter, even as impending judgment and death are looming over them. That's the difference between the church and the world, brothers and sisters. And so the angels say, up, there it is again, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, the ones that are here. So most likely, Lot had other daughters in the city that were already married. They didn't come. So the ones that are here, let's go, let's get out of this place. And we know the story, we know what's about to happen. We think, Lot, why are you lingering? Look at verse 16. He lingered, and it's like watching a movie, and you know something's going to go down. It's going to be very, very bad, and the, and the actor in the movie just sits there and, and waits, and you think, get out of there. He lingers. Lot has a very comfortable life. He's got wealth and status. And brothers and sisters, when the things of this world accumulate in our, in our lives, they accumulate in our hearts. And when the time comes when God calls us to give things up in order to follow him, we linger. Lord, really, do I need to give this up? I like it. It's comfortable. Life is good. I'm not sure I want to follow the hard road. I'm not sure I want to deny myself and take up my cross and follow the Lord Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, luxury and wealth and comfort can be curses. When they get their tendrils into our heart and they, they cling to our hearts so that we linger 
in the face of judgment and hesitate and delay to choose the path of life and righteousness. You, you know, when, when we linger, when we're foolish, God is merciful. These men just grab Lot and his wife and his daughters. They pull them out of the city. The Lord being merciful to him. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us in our own foolishness. He, he often intervenes. And there it is. You think, well, Lot, you're kind of figuring it out now. Get out of there. Go up, up into the hills, far away from the destruction. And Lot has become so accustomed to his ease that he intercedes for the city of Bela. That's the, the name of the city before it was changed. Zoar means little or insignificant. So after this chapter, that city became known by that name. It used to be called Bela. Lot intercedes for that city. But he's not interceding the way Abraham did last chapter. Abraham was concerned about the souls. He was concerned about uh, if there were still righteous people, that there was still some hope of, 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 of the Lord working in those cities and working repentance. But Lot is interceding for himself. He's worried about his comfort. He's worried about his convenience. He has grown sluggish and self-absorbed in his wealth and in his comfort. And once again, brothers and sisters, sometimes if God gives us too much, that can turn out to be a curse. It makes us slow and sluggish in obedience. And the surprising, the Lord often surprises us, and here he surprises us again because he says, I will not overthrow that city for your sake. The Lord puts up with this. This is one of the five cities. These were evil, wicked cities. Zoar too, or Bela, was a wicked city. And God says, okay, save your life, Lot. I will spare that city. Sometimes the unrighteous, the ungodly are spared because of God's mercy on his people. You see, the, the results of this is that because of Lot's self-absorption, because of Lot's concern with his comfort, his convenience, one of those cities remains. Injustice, wickedness, unrighteousness remain on the earth in that city of Zoar because of Lot's choices. Now look at verse 23, the sun had rid, risen and it's a new day and the Bible tells us that his mercies are new every morning. You know, brothers and sisters, this is a hard thing to wrap our minds around, but we have to understand that one of God's mercies is that he is a just judge. That he will wipe wickedness off the face of the earth that God will not allow unrighteousness and wickedness to go unpunished. And so this is his mercy. On a broken and fallen world, he destroys that which is anti-God, that which does not fit with his nature and with the creation the way he created it to be. And this is a, a terrible judgment fire and, and sulfur rain down from the Lord out of heaven and just simply wipe out this area, the inhabitants, and what grew on the ground, everything, the, the, even the vegetation, it becomes from the garden of the Lord kind of uh, productivity, it becomes a dry and, and, and deserted place. And the Bible uses Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction as a symbol of the last judgment. That's how powerful and scary it was. Jude, in his letter, says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example 
by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So it's a picture right here in that valley of what God will do on the last day. He will cleanse all the wickedness, the foulness of sin from this earth. He will burn it up. There'll be nothing left. That's a scary thing, the righteous judgment of God. Everything will be brought into judgment. Not one sinful act will pass God's notice, will escape God's notice. Not one idle word will be spoken which does not have to be accounted for before him who judges everyone, who knows the secret thoughts and intentions of the heart. Not one abuse, not one mistreatment, not one hateful act or word will go unpunished. And we sang Psalm 11. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. That's what the gospel says about the righteous judgment of God, that he destroys sin and sinners. He wipes them off the face of the earth. Now, how do you feel about that? It's not a pleasant thing to tell our unbelieving neighbors, is it? It's not a pleasant thing to think about. That every day we're closer to the the last day when God will come again, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead and to cleanse the world with fire. How do we feel about that? That we're living amongst many, many people who are hurtling towards eternal destruction. Isn't there another way? Can't isn't God love? Can't God just make everybody better? And then we all go into heaven together. Isn't that possible? Brothers and sisters, we have to understand the big picture here. If one of my members of my body is dying, if there is decomposing flesh, if my hand is full of gangrene, then the doctors and the nurses will try as long as they can to save that member while there is hope, to cut out the dead flesh and to to hopefully see restoration of that member. But when all is lost, when it is foul and corrupted and just putrid and breaking down, and it's a danger to the rest of the body because that, that deadness is creeping through to my wrist and my arm and to the rest of my body, that at a certain point, any good doctor will say, we've got to chop that off to save you. And sin is gangrene. Sin is a cancer, and sin must be rooted out. It must be destroyed. There is no other way. You can't live with your cancer. You can't let your cancer grow and say, well, we'll just live with it. No, it's going to kill you. Either you kill the cancer or it kills you. And so either sin must be killed or it will be killing us. And that's why God judges sin with the eternal fire of hell. Brother and sister, every sin must pass into the fires of hell. Either we personally will pay for our sins in the fires of hell, or Christ will suffer in our place. Those are the the only two options. And that's why the gospel is so important, brothers and sisters, because God is a righteous judge, because he will punish sin, because he will destroy sin and sinners from off the earth. Therefore, the gospel is so glorious. And Paul speaks to the Thessalonians about that. He says, you turned to God from idols. 
to serve the living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's who he is. He is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know, how often do we not take the gospel and say, wow, that's just a little too awkward in the Canadian context. And we tell our neighbors, Jesus is the one who meets your felt needs. Jesus is the one who is your buddy and your friend, and he's going to make you happy, and everything's going to be nice. And when you follow Jesus, you get to meet other nice people and have dessert after morning service before lunch, and it's, you just really want to do that. It's a nice life. We, we water down the gospel because we're afraid of its truth, that Jesus saves us, delivers us from the wrath to come, and our neighbors need to hear about that wrath that's coming. They need to hear about the righteous judgment of God. We read it there in Luke chapter 17. Our Lord Jesus said it himself out of his own mouth. He said, you know what? Just like in Noah's time, they didn't want to listen to the preacher of righteousness. They were having fun. They were living it up. They were marrying, getting married, and giving in marriage. They were eating and drinking. And the flood came and wiped all that sin off the earth. It happened in the day of Lot too. Jesus refers to Lot and the fire of heaven upon Sodom. It's another picture, just like the flood of God's judgment. That's what Jesus reminds us of, that pressing truth, that judgment is coming upon the earth and that there is little time, that while it is still today, the sinner must seek God while he is to be found. Brothers and sisters, every day we're closer to that last day when the fires of judgment will be poured out upon this world, how are we living with a view to that? Our country has great wealth. Our country has great ease. Our country has great convenience. And together with all these things, our country has great arrogance and pride and injustice. And we murder the elderly and we murder the vulnerable and we murder little children in the womb of their mothers. And we celebrate sexual deviance and immorality. We take pride in perversion. Now, how does the church respond to all that? As we live in Sodom, the Sodom of 21st century Canada, how how do we respond to that? You know, often we make the mistake of seeking the external good of the land, just like Abraham did. Lot and all the people of Sodom were captured. They were taken away by those kings. Abraham chases them down, saves them, restores all their stuff to them so they can go right on sinning. That external help didn't do a lick of good for these people. You know, we often fall into that, into that trap. We, we seek the external. The, the, the good, the external good of our society, of our city. We, we seek to vote for the person that will have the best economic plan for our country because, of course, a vote for someone who stands up for righteousness is a wasted vote, isn't it? But what good is it if people are perhaps blessed materially if they do not turn to God? And if they are not delivered from the wrath to come, if we want to show love to our world, to our city of St. Albert, to our country of Canada, 
Perhaps we need to ask God to change our perspective. Perhaps we need to learn to say, thank you, God, for the pandemic. Thank you, God, for suffering. Thank you, God, for economic crisis. Thank you, God. Pour those things upon our country so that people wake up and look to you and, and, and realize that they cannot live without God. Maybe the, the pangs and the, the first tastes of the hell to come might soften hearts and might incline ears to hear the gospel and to seek that sinners would seek after God while he may yet be found. This is a solemn warning. The righteous judgment of God is a solemn warning to our country and to us as we live in it. It's also a solemn warning that we need to be living in communion with the church of God. When the waters or the fires of judgment come upon this earth, the church is the ark in which the righteous are safe and saved, and it floats above the waters of judgment. On the last day, it will float above the fires of judgment. Lot's wife, look at verse 26, Lot's wife, she looked back because the pleasures of this world gripped her heart. She didn't want to let go. You know, sometimes you read stories of people who are drowning at sea, and they're holding on to their gold and their, all their worldly goods, and those things are dragging them down, but they won't give them up, even for life itself. And we read there in Luke chapter 17, the Lord Jesus said to us, one of the shortest verses in the Bible, remember Lot's wife. Brother, sister, what are you holding on to? What am I holding on to? Which is weighing us down, which is dragging us down, which is keeping us from pursuing life, what are we holding on to? What is holding on to us? No, God remembered Abraham. That's why Lot was saved. Lot was connected to the church. Lot went out from Haran with Abraham. He went out in faith. He, he was called. He's called in the New Testament a righteous man. You know what? You can be a righteous man and you can make foolish choices. You make careless choices. And choice by choice by choice, Lot chooses to drift away from the church, to drift away from Abraham, to drift away from God and from grace, and he ends up living in the hills in a cave. All that lust for worldly comfort and prosperity, he sits there in a cave. He's too afraid to live in Zoar because the smoke is still going up, and he's afraid that there's going to be some more fire and brimstone coming on the city where he's now living because it's just as wicked. So he moves out of there. He lives in a cave. A cave is a place for, for bodies. It's a place where, where dead bodies are stored, are, are buried. And, and there's Lot. He has no sons. He has no future. He has no wife. He has no stuff. He has no comfort. His choices have left him in a dry, deserted place of death and despair. And you think, well, why don't you go to Abraham? Why do you go to the place where God speaks? Why do you go to the place where God has his covenant? Why do you go to the place where there's a promise of life? But Lot stays where he is. And then his daughters show their Sodom upbringing. They've been categorized in the way of the world. You know, they say after the manner of all the earth, after the way of all the earth, there's no man to come into us. You know, even in their twisted fashion, 
these girls recognize the imperative of family to have offspring. That was, that's strong in the human being. Today, we're so much further advanced because today, women, young women are encouraged to celebrate death and sterility, sterile wombs, and, and choosing not to have children is lauded in our day. So we've gone a lot further down even than the times of Sodom. So they understand the, the need to have children, but they, they seek it in a perverted way. They make the father drink wine. You know, brothers and sisters, there's a reason why the Lord says that we should not get inebriated with wine, with drugs, or with anything else, because when we're not sober, we can't say no to sin. We can't distinguish between good and evil. That's why it's such a wicked thing to let your mind be taken over once or regularly or frequently with things that alter your ability to think, to discern. It is a foul and sinful blasphemy against God. When someone made in his image is flopping around and falling on the ground and throwing up and, and just sinning and, and embracing sin without even realizing what they're doing. And that's what happens to Lot. That's where his choices have brought him. You remember after the, the flood, Noah got drunk? And after the fires, Lot gets drunk. Now, notice the honesty of the girls. They're more honest than the guys back in Sodom. They don't say, let us know our father. They know that that's a holy word reserved for godly and holy intimacy in marriage. They say, let's lie with our father. They refer to the actual act apart from love. But they're shameless about it. You see that in the names that they give their children. Moab means from dad. That's the kid's name, from dad. Yeah, that's my son that I got from dad. And Benami means from my people. Basically, it means son of incest. That's kind of the idea there, from my people. Same thing, from dad, from my people. These girls are shameless in their sins. And Moab and the Ammonites, the Moabites and the Ammonites, become great enemies of the people of God. All of this from this righteous man and his bad choices. Now, let's wrap this up, brothers and sisters. What do we learn here from Genesis chapter 19? You know, a lot of people read Genesis 19, Sodom, homosexual rape, and they say, well, the, the Bible says that homosexuals will be judged by God. Well, yes, they will. Every sin will be judged by God. Also, my sin of gossip will be judged by God. That's a given. But how does the Bible use Sodom? You know what? You read through the scriptures. The Bible hardly ever uses Sodom as a warning for the unbeliever. But God uses Sodom as a warning for the church. And you read Isaiah chapter 1, and I'd like you to turn there because this is important. We need to hear the prophet Isaiah chapter 1. He's talking to the church. And hear, hear how he talks to the church. Isaiah 1, 10 to 16. He's talking to the elders and deacons here and the ministers. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings and the fat of well-bed feasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my cause? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. 
Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm wary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is God talking to the church. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. We don't have time, but there are a lot of scriptures which say similar things. The Lord Jesus says to Capernaum, a city in the the covenant people of God, he says, on the day of judgment, things are going to be worse for you than they are for Sodom. So brothers and sisters, God comes to us this morning and and he he confronts us with our pride and with our excess of food and with our prosperous ease and without lack of concern for the poor and the needy, and without accepting of sexual sin and immorality in our communion, in our hearts, in our homes, on our screens. How can we come before God on Sunday morning and accept, expect our worship to be accepted if things so vile that they would make the sodomites blush are flickering on our screens during the week. And so the question is, brothers and sisters, will we embrace our sin or will we embrace the righteous judgment of God on sin? God calls us this morning to praise him for his holy wrath. God calls us this morning to worship him for pouring out his holy wrath that my sin deserves for pouring it out not on me, but on Jesus. And God calls us this morning to pray fervently for the coming judgment, for that cleansing fire of his righteous wrath to purge the world from all wickedness and sin and death and to make all things new. Amen.